Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Oh, she is back. Uh, fan favorite, including with some of my <laughs> children. Uh, Sarah Stook, historian, uh, writing at elections.daily.com, one of our favorite websites that we partner with them frequently. She does a lot of history stuff. She's writing a series on first ladies. Sarah, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on again. Thrilled to have you back. Thrilled to be talking about this topic because I find it so interesting. Put a little context on it because, of course, you're over there in England. Um, U.S.'s system of government is unique in a lot of ways. How does the role of a first lady play into that? Because they're not elected to office. They don't really have any actual power. And yet when you go through history, they have a ton of influence. They have a lot of state functions as far as representatives of government go, as we'll get into with some of these stories you're going to touch into. Just compared to other countries, the status of the American first lady, what is it and how does it come across? Well, it's definitely different to here. You know, the spouse of the prime minister doesn't really get much attention. I mean, our current spouse, Carrie Johnson, gets quite a lot of press because she's seen as a bit interfering rightly or wrongly and she's nicknamed Carrie Antoinette but yeah in America it's so different you've got first ladies who were very very political like you know Hillary Clinton and then you've got first ladies who use their role as hostess to a team like Dolly Madison you can so many ways and if you've got the ear of the most powerful man in the country you can use that and they're there to be the the nice face first ladies have much better a popularity ratings than their husbands generally because they don't get into the nitty gritty it's a lot easier for them to be popular however I think that's less true over the years as I think first ladies have become more emboldened to be political as have women overall yeah uh you mentioned her so let's just start right there Dolly Madison kind of the first I don't know you'd call superstar but certainly one of the ones that actually got a little bit of legend around her for a couple of various reasons how much of it is true? How much of it is historical? How much is it myth and legend, the things she did? Of course, we understand the time period she was in. Talk about Dolly Madison for just a minute. Well, she was a pretty phenomenal woman. She wasn't you know, political, you know, like Abigail Adams had been before her or anything like that. But you know, she used state functions well. She was an incredible hostess. She knew who to put together at meetings, who not to put together. Everybody liked her because she was just so good at hosting. And that played a favourite for her husband because he might be unpopular for political reasons, but as long as she shines through, and that's what she did. And that really helped the administration. Um, that time period, the early founding fathers, Let's talk about those early White Houses, though, because they didn't even really have a White House. You talk about Washington, Adams, Jefferson, the early presidents. 
Um, they were really making this up from scratch. Washington, of course, had to, you know, the two terms gets really famous, but he had to do all of this from whole cloth because there was nobody before him. Uh, Adams did a lot of writing about what the presidency should and shouldn't be. He felt the weight of history being the second one. Talk about that, though, because with the first ladies, it's the same thing. They didn't really have a template. Those cup, those first three or four, they're making it up as they go. And then when they actually did get a White House, they they kind of understood that they were setting a protocol for something, didn't they? Yeah, well, they were just sort of following what their hosting duties would have been in high society, you know, in early Philadelphia and New York. And perhaps, you know, those who are a bit more worldly saw, you know, the French courts and the English courts. Obviously, it wasn't as ostentatious due to America's disdain for royalty, but they were just following what their mothers and grandmothers and women across the world do. And so the president didn't know what his role was. The first lady certainly didn't know what hers was either. When did it start to change and get more formal? Because you're up through the antebellum time period now. You're getting ready to get into sort of the uh, the gilded age, industrial age of the country. When did it become more formalized and go from, you know, something we would recognize in a period drama as just the hostessing duties to something a little more refined of, hey, this is basically an extension of the function of state. And it kind of became its own unique American thing. I think Dolly Madison definitely started that trend. That's when people started to notice the First Lady, even though that term wasn't in use when Mrs. Madison was around. She was the one who really said, "Okay, this is how you do it. These are the this is the etiquette. This is where people sit together." She was definitely more of a hostess than her predecessors. You know, um, Jefferson's wife had died, so it was his daughters that helped. Abigail Adams was a bit more of a blue stocking. And Martha Washington was, you know, she was no, no means sort of a country bumpkin, but she was more of a planter wife as opposed to a sort of social elite, worldly type. So Dolly Madison, I think, put the practice in as we understand it today. So where did the term, talking to Sarah Stuck, historian and writer and good friend of the program, been on many times, where does the term actually come from, first lady? Because that's that's kind of a unique term. Uh, it's been used in other areas, obviously. But when did that become the the nomenclature for the president's wife or the president's spouse? I think it's forward? definitely within the past you know, century. I think, you know, it was a term that would, it would be presidential spouse or um I think it was Martha Washington wanted it to be Mrs. President Rask, which didn't really catch on as it shouldn't because it's not a very snappy title. So it's definitely sort of a new thing. Like it wasn't called the White House until, you know, Roosevelt's time, for example. It's sort of a new vernacular, like first family, first child, even first pets. Yeah, we uh, you'll probably have to do a pet one of these at some point, too, while you're at it, because there's some good stories with that. Talking to Sarah Stuck. OK, you mentioned the elite you mentioned france we actually had not a first lady but a first lady and everything but name elizabeth hay uh one of the monroe children very uh francophile or whatever that fancy term for that is to the point went to school with one of napoleon's stepchildren and actually ended up moving to paris and living the rest of her life in france but she served as the de facto first lady and hostess of the white house that's a pretty interesting story what happened there well, like you said, educated in France, brought, you know, French je ne sais quoi to the White House, which, you know, isn't always popular, especially when she was acting like royalty, which, again, they didn't appreciate. But, you know, if we go even as close to us as Jackie Kennedy, she was extremely inspired by the French, much less so 
in hosting, but she was a huge Francophile who also studied in France. So I think the the old world definitely influenced the new world when it came to hosting, sort of, oh, look at us, we are worldly, this is how the Europeans do it. Now, one that was on these early ones that I don't think I've really heard talked about and or mentioned much at all, but Martha Randolph. Um, I find this really fascinating because people people know this stuff about Jefferson. They know the Sally Henning stuff. They know Jefferson's wife died. Talk about Martha Randolph, though, because you you dubbed her kind of the unifier. She was a presidential daughter, obviously. This is somebody who hadn't been talked about a lot in American history. I don't I didn't really know anything about her other than just the name until I read about you. But very interesting character. Exactly. I mean, you know, back in sort of the olden times, if a queen was no longer living or couldn't, a daughter or a daughter-in-law would take over, you know, and we would see that with first ladies. Um Jefferson's wife said to him, please don't marry again, because she'd had very bad experiences with her stepmother. So Jefferson agreed, still rape slaves, but hey, hey. So he asked Martha to do it, and she was pretty good at it. She was pretty unpretentious. She was a very pretty girl, married, lots of children. So, you know, children running around the White House, for example. I believe she had 11, so, you know, she didn't slack when it came to the childbearing, and she did live through all of it. Unfortunately, her sister died in childbirth, age 25. She sometimes helped out as well, which was unified because she knew exactly how to do it. She'd been doing it from such a young age because her mother died when she was fairly young. So she knew exactly what she was doing. She was sort of trained from birth in a way a lot of first ladies weren't. How much influence, when when we're talking about these presidents and their first ladies, and in some cases their daughters, we we've marbleized these guys, the Jeffersons, the Washingtons, the Adams, you know, they're statues now they're legends. Doesn't studying this angle on it with their wives, their family lives, the way they ran their household, which is just kind of the mundane day-to-day stuff. Jefferson kept very detailed notes on how Monticello was to run things like this. I find this a great way that kind of humanizes these, these guys because they're, they're so they're more myth than men to us now. And I think this really seems to humanize them in a lot of ways because they had to have interpersonal relationships with all these people, didn't they? Exactly. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, obviously, we remember him as quite, you know, serious, quite a bit dull, remembering, you know, badly for the Sally Hemings affair. But, you know, he did love his wife. He didn't actually marry again, which he said he wouldn't. Though you can sort of skirt around how he also skirted around that. But yeah, he was a human being. John Adams, you know, was very, you know, a bit of a pompous idiot who very much liked himself and didn't get on with others. Adored his wife, Abigail. In France, he refused to take a mistress like most of the French did, saying, no, I've got Abigail. He listened to her ideas, also didn't always agree with them because time period, her feminist ideas probably weren't too popular, but he did love and respect her. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Sarah Stuck, our good friend from over in the UK, uh, writing in uh, electionsdaily.com. She's got a great series on first ladies. So we're talking a little history today. When we come back, uh, we're going to get into a little letter history. One of the most famous first ladies for a lot of wrong reasons, Mary Todd Lincoln, going to get into that. Some other first ladies that you may not have heard of. More with Sarah Stuck on her tale right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing our conversation with Sarah Stook, our good friend over in the UK, historian, writer. She's writing about U.S. first ladies. 
Okay, just the dichotomy of it is amazing because we we mostly think of Lincoln as our greatest president or one of the greatest if he's not number one. Um, but poor Mary Todd Lincoln may have been one of our most troubled first ladies. Uh, she was a great burden on the president for a lot of reasons. They still had their tender moments as you did, but she had a lot of trouble. Uh, there's probably a mental health component to a lot of that. She had a lot of tragedy even in the White House. The, it, it's just amazing that one of our greatest presidents at the same time, had, on top of a civil war, had this absolutely tumultuous home life with his wife. I think she's very sort of cruelly remembered as Lincoln's crazy wife. You know, there was an episode of Glee where one of the characters made fun of Mary for being bipolar, which I remember was very controversial. This was like a decade ago, so I can't imagine it would be done now. She, you know, definitely had some problems. Obviously, we can't be armchair psychiatrists, can we, and say... Okay, yeah, she definitely had this or that, but she was a very troubled lady. You've got to think of the time where mental health was extremely poorly understood. Women were just seen as hysterical, so everyone thought, oh, she was just a bit of a hysterical woman. And it's quite sad, really. You know, she was a very intelligent woman. She was a very loving wife who was devoted to her husband and her children. But history remembers her as, oh, yeah, she was put in a lunatic asylum. No, she was living with the Civil War just as much as her husband. She had family fighting for the Confederacy, even though she was a firm unionist and much more of an abolitionist than her husband was. So we remember her very cruelly, which is quite a shame. And I think very good portrayal of it was um, Garvidal's Lincoln, a three-part series, which you can find on Amazon UK. And it's Mary Tyler Moore plays it. And she's fantastic. And we see a lot more of Mary and understand her, her feelings and her motivations. She had some legitimately tragic stuff go on. Uh, you talked about her family being split during the war. Um, she suffered from chronic migraines. She was involved in a carriage accident, which may or may not have affected her physical health, probably did with all her other ailments. She had children dying. Of course, Lincoln was assassinated. That, that just broke her in a lot of ways. She had more on her than just about any human being could probably take anyway. How, how should we view her? I know you say it's probably unfair because history is like that. And, and Lincoln is so great. It's probably, you know, part and parcel with Lincoln being so great that, you know, he could he's flawless to a lot of folks. How should we present somebody like Mary Todd Lincoln? Because she's an important figure in history because she steered his early career. She steered him away from going out west and doing politics out there, which probably would have not let him be president down the road. She's an important figure in history. How should we view her, do you think? Well, I mean, she was definitely troubled and I think she had a lot of potential cruelty. You know, there is rumours she hit her husband. There's the famous event where she screamed and yelled at a general's wife who'd dared to ride next to her husband and the poor lady was reduced to tears. So, yeah, she definitely had you know, capacity for some cruelty, but whether that was mental illness or she just had that streak in her. Lincoln said, you know, she used to be a very loving, happy woman. So unfortunately, I think, you know, age and tragedy embittened her. But, you know, like you said, she, he, she stirred his career. She was an abolitionist when he certainly wasn't. His was more for pragmatism than moral reasons, especially at the beginning. And yeah, she's not just some, you know, crazy lady who was just in an asylum by her own son. Nowadays, hopefully she would have much better help. And I think as a society, we're a lot more understanding and forgiving of that. 
um, from somebody who was very troubled to somebody who was complicated and adapted. I found um, when you wrote about it, a president we don't talk about a whole lot, Rutherford B. Hayes, his wife, Lucy, um, we talk about, you know, nowadays we use the term activist a lot. She really was an activist in a lot of cases. And then she had to kind of adapt herself to the politics of the day and the White House. And she still seemed to have a very strong relationship with her husband. Talk about Lucy Hayes a little bit. Yeah, everyone just mocks her as Lemonade Lucy, who, you know, didn't allow wine at the White House, etc. I mean, we've still had two two-taller presidents. You know, Trump didn't. He saw his brother die from alcoholism. Bush suffered from alcoholism and now he doesn't drink. But back then, you know, prohibition, temperance was extremely popular, especially among women. They saw husbands coming home drunk and idle, beating their wives and not working and thought, you know, this is a societal problem. And she was far from the other one. And she was extremely intelligent. First lady to go to college, she was extremely intelligent, so much so that Rutherford B. Hayes was both ad- admired her and was a bit scared of her for being so intelligent she probably would have got um supported women's suffrage if she'd lived longer or been a different time period she wasn't absolutely perfect on race but she definitely was very strongly abolitionist and spoke out for civil rights she was a pretty remarkable lady who's just gone down to oh she didn't like to drink and she was a she's the forebearer. Before her, first ladies were maybe very intelligent, but they weren't, you know, highly educated as it wasn't expecting women to. But look, several of our most recent first ladies have either got law degrees, PhD, or, or graduates. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Uh talking to Sarah Stuck, a little bit of history. Okay, here's one that I love and I've actually studied a little bit. Uh Julia Grant. Uh, Grant, of course, speaking of drinking problems, Grant had himself one. Uh, Lincoln famously told when the generals tried to get him fired, get Grant fired, he famously quipped that we'll find out whatever Brandy's drinking and I'll give him more and give it to all the other generals because he fights. Uh, but when you look at history, the only time Grant drank was when his wife wasn't around. Uh, it's very amazing relationship. Julia Dent was her maiden name. Talk about her uh, very fascinating woman, her family background. And then she got connected to Ulysses S. Grant, who, <laughs> to put it kindly, was a failure at pretty much everything he did that did not involve the army until the Civil War kind of revived his life. Talk about her a little bit. You know, she was born pretty much to refinement. Her family owned slaves. You know, she grew up very pampered and well off, but she always said, you know, she had a very happy childhood. Um, her brother was at West Point with Grant and said, you need to meet this guy. I think you would get along. But obviously they clearly did because they got married. But his parents wouldn't attend the wedding because they were staunch abolitionists. And one of the um, very few presidential parents or couples who were still alive when the son became president. So they said, oh, you're marrying into a slave owning family. We've got nothing against Julia. She's fine. But we don't want you marrying into that. And conversely, his father-in-law liked him but said, I don't think you can provide my daughter in the way I want. And during the Civil War, when he offered Grant, you know, come to the Confederacy, and Grant said no, Mr. Dent just was um, didn't break off ties because he was so close to Julia. Now, when he gets to the White House, um, Ulysses S. Grant, of course, the great war hero, 
very troubled presidency, a lot going on. In fact, uh, the term for corruption in the White House for decades after that was grantism. Uh, some of that's unfair. Some of it is fair. We can parse that out some other time. Uh, but a tumultuous presidency for somebody who was kind of a living legend. How did she handle her actual time in the White House? You know, she, obviously her husband was very much known for his corruption, she said, and probably only skated through because he was a war hero. She just said, okay, I'll ignore it. And she just got on with it, which to be fair, there's not really much she can do about it. She may be associated with him because his wife, but she's not political. So she's safe in that respect. So she just sort of got on with it as many first ladies do. You know, look at Hillary Clinton during the impeachment and the Lewinsky scandal. She just said, okay, I'm just going to crack on with being first lady. And that's sort of a hallmark of many first ladies going through very hard times without problems and that's probably how she was raised you know you've got a wife and a mother never perturbed by anything and famously grant uh was practically broke when he died but he was fighting throat cancer there's a famous picture of him sitting on the porch in the adirondacks writing his memoirs one of the great memoirs by the way if you've never read grant's memoirs go find it read it but he finished them right at the time of his death and it restored his family's fortune and she had quite the post-White House career. She kind of became sort of a conciliary to future first ladies, the Cleveland she was very close to. She had a very, very successful post-White House career, advocacy-wise, and just being kind of a, a who's who in the Washington circles, wasn't she? I think, you know, when I write about, write about her, there was just so much I wanted to give in, but, you know, you couldn't do a whole piece on it. And there's probably first ladies I'll write about in the future, the ones like Jackie Kennedy, who I just read a biography of her, who had the most amazing post-White House life, Hillary Clinton, you know, her political career. There's so much you want to, you know, jam into it because, well, there's so much to do. But it's an article about first ladies. So to be fair to them, I will write about more what they did in their time as first lady, but we may be associated Hillary Clinton more with politics, but you know, Julia Grant, she will always most likely be a first lady as opposed to anything but. Yeah. All right. I've been saving it because this is one of my favorite things you've written in the first four series of this, but you talked about it before. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was a little hard to get along with. You talked about that ride, the, the her excoriating the general's wife for riding too close to Lincoln. Julia Grant was there for that. She saw that. She tried to intervene. She got her head bit off. And that kind of intersected with one of the most famous things that has ever happened in American history, didn't it? Well, in April 1865, they invited the Grants to come to the theater with them. Ulysses says Grant was probably all for it, but Julia Grant said, no, I can't stand her. It will be boring. Let's stay at home. We've been apart for too long. Let's just have some time together. And that night, Lincoln was shot. So A, Grant could have been shot, or B, maybe could have prevented it because he said if I'd been there, there would have been a lot more, you know, bodyguards and military. So, you know, he, she basically saved his life. And I bet she never shut up about that during arguments, did she? I doubt it, although Grant, Grant very much, if you read his personal memoirs and you read his letters, uh, he very much deferred to his wife on practically everything. I think he was pretty self-aware to his uh, station in life. There was that social disparaging between them. I don't know if it was so much that. I think he just was very aware of his own issues and knew that she made him better. 
And again, like I said, fascinating. All, every time he drinks in the Civil War and he's accused of being a drunkard, it's only when his wife's not with him. He never drank around Julia. I just find that maybe it's because I'm an alcoholic, but I find that fascinating, that little piece of history. All right. You're halfway through the series. Preview a little bit. The rest of them aren't out just yet. Preview where you're going with this. You already mentioned some. We know there's some big names. Hillary Clinton's coming up. Uh, who, of course, had her own political career and two runs of the presidency. But between there and here, we got a whole lot of first ladies. Who are you looking forward to getting into? Well, everybody who knows me and follows me on Twitter knows I idolise Jackie Kennedy beyond belief. So I'll be trying not to devote an entire thing about how much I love Jackie and her amazing life and how amazing she was. Eleanor Roosevelt, who I absolutely adore, the most trailblazer, did so much to women in civil rights. Well, I just find the most incredible woman who I think should have been president over her husband. But yeah, we've got some other ones. Um, Edith Wilson, Ellen Wilson. There's, you know, there's so many. Um, well, yeah, I think particularly the newer ones, we've had such a, an amazing variety of women, you know, Michelle Obama versus Melania Trump, two very different ladies, but both deserving of um, writing. Yeah. What are you going to do with Edith Wilson, our first female president? Or are you even going to get into that? Uh, well, I'm going to have to get into that because, you know, like you said, she was called the first female president for a reason. She kind of floated protocol. It should have gone to his vice president. But pretty amazing that she did that and flew under the radar because there's no way in heck society was going to be okay with a woman basically running things, especially when women were just getting the vote. So she, yeah, she's definitely going to be a fascinating one. And I urge people, if you've got a particular first lady you've read about who find interesting, definitely read more about her. Yeah. Cause uh, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, Wilson suffered a stroke. She became the gatekeeper to the president and basically ran the government for something like 14 months. And nobody seemed to stop it, which is just fascinating. I can't wait to read your writing about it. Uh, Sarah Stook, you do great work. We love having these little history interludes on the program. Let folks know where they can find you. Of course, this series is on electionsdaily.com. Let them know where your social media is and the schedule for the new com- pieces coming out. And we're going to have you back on in a week or two to recap all of it as well. So let folks know where they can follow you. Um, well, it's Sarah underscore Stoop on Twitter. I also write for the UK publication called The Mallard. I am writing a piece on royal mistresses, most famous mistresses. So that will be quite fun. Um, and I've written a few sort of alternate history and various things on UK politics on there. Elections Daily, I will be keeping up writing with first ladies, starting with um, Lucretia Garfield this week and going on to about early 20th century. So, yeah, follow my things. Yeah, Garfield's a fascinating president, too. Nobody ever talks about him, but he he's a really interesting dude. Yeah, you, go ahead. I was going to say, I think he would have been very great if he'd lived. Yeah, it's just fascinating story. All right, you brought it up, so I got to ask you, though. Uh, royal mistresses, uh, we're, we're kind of getting down to it with the queen, God bless her, but, you know, time's undefeated. Camilla, she went from mistress to being basically, it looks like she's going to be pretty well legitimized when this thing goes to Charles. How does that land? Well, she's going to be princess consort. She will have the right to be queen consort, but she knows people don't like her over the Diana thing, so she will be princess consort. But I think she's regained popularity. There's still people who hate her, like my mum. Diana is my middle name for a reason. So, but I, I like her plenty fine. Yeah. But unfortunately, you've got to understand throughout history, men have just been a bit man ish <laughs> Is Charles ever going to be popular? Uh, yeah, 
yeah, I think people have softened on him a bit, but it's never going to be sort of William popular. No, I, I think when the Queen does pass away, whenever that is, hopefully many years from now, I, I, I think he'll get some sympathy out of that. And I think that'll yeah. put a lot of that to bed. But, well, of course, that depends on how he conducts himself. But, you know, he's he's pretty old in his game now. He should be able to at least not, you know, punt it, I hope. Sarah Stuck, we'll have to talk about royal stuff some other time. Great stuff on history. We love having you on. We'll have you back on in a couple of weeks to talk about the rest of the series when it comes out. And you're always welcome, my friend. Thanks for the time. Thank you for having me. You're the best. Appreciate it. Okay.